Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favorite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish dash tech dash news. Hi, welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with Enza Inapola, Senior Analyst in the Security and Risk Team at Forrester. How are you doing, Enza? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Great, thanks. Now, tell me a bit about your background and what Forrester does. Sure. So, I am a Senior Analyst in the Security and Risk Team. I have been covering privacy specifically for the last eight, nine years. So, a lot of it is compliance with data protection regulation. So, I help clients really navigate. It's not really legal advice, but it's really helping them understand how rules around data privacy would actually change data flows, change their systems, change the way they work with their third parties. Um, I also work with organizations and want to use privacy as an element of competitive differentiation. And so, really helping their customers to feel comfortable, um, promote transparency in the way they use data, being able to communicate effectively with their customers when it comes to, uh, to data privacy. There is a lot at the moment going on also in the employee space. And so a lot of employers are trying to improve the way they communicate uh, with their employees about uh, data privacy too. Um, I also cover digital identities for Forrester and I've been looking into pandemic management um, uh, since uh, this pandemic started. Uh, Forrester is a research firm. We do, um, as I said, a lot of research in a number of trends that have to do with business and technology. And we help clients fundamentally be successful in their work with the information that we uh, we provide. We also collect a lot of data worldwide from businesses, from consumers, really to help clients understand key trends and and act on those trends. So in a way, you're a bit like Gartner as well. Well, we do a lot of uh, business insights, really. It's not driven by the technology. It's very much driven by all these other macro variables that you have as a business. And, of course, we provide a lot of guidance and advice on the technology as well. So, in that sense, yes. At the moment, we've, we've seen an increase in AI ethics. How important is it? Oh, it is extremely important. And actually, this is so timely because uh, very recently, the European Commission um, issued a new proposed regulation for regulating um, high-stakes application of uh, artificial intelligence. So this is the very first global regulation on um, artificial intelligence applications. Now, before that, the European Commission has been working on a set of guidelines for uh, trustworthy AI, as they call it. Mm. Um, And this kind of effort has been going on, I mean, in terms of the guidelines, so not binding uh, a set of rules, but very much... Uh, uh, you know, advice and suggestion for organizations that are developing artificial intelligence, that are using artificial intelligence. These the guidelines is, has been something that we have seen emerging in different places, not just Europe. But this new regulation, this proposed regulation now, um, uh, is definitely a, a first. Um, and it's coming from the European um, Union. Um, you know, there are different aspects to it. I think the good part of it is an approach that is very much risk-driven. So the European Union is not trying to regulate all possible uses of artificial intelligence, but they are trying to focus on some very specific use cases. 
there is increased oversight for some use cases, um, a call for more transparency for the use cases. Think about chat box, for example, of deepfakes. Yeah. The European Union is saying you should label that clearly so people should know that they are not talking to a human, for example. Um, there are other cases considered to be those high-risk um, application, for example. A lot of it has to do with hiring or, uh, you know, kind of selection process. Think about a college admission or think about some uses for critical infrastructure or the loan applications, for example. Those yeah. are some of the uses of artificial intelligence that European Union are saying. Those are high-risk and they would require some specific oversight. This is building on the GDPR, um, fully automated decision-making processes. So yeah. it's building off that. And there are a few cases they are formally banned. Uh, for example, the um, credit scoring system, like the one some country, some, some cities in China um, have, or uh, the use of remote biometric recognition systems for policing. So uh, the facial recognition yeah. uh, in real time on, on uh, public spaces. Those are at the moment banned, even though you know there are exceptions to that rule. Yeah. So it's, it's a it's a set of new uh, requirements. Yeah, because I'm thinking, for example, if somebody is protesting in a protest against a, against a government in the country, and the government knows who they are because the phone detects them there, and also their face is seen in the camera. Yeah. Not not safe <laughs> and not good for democracy. And not at all. Not at all. And I think there is an attempt to try and, and regulate, you know, a different form of that. Because in some cases, it's so extreme that actually you can actually see why this is bad. But there are other. I think they also are, co are creating this idea of um, uh, subliminal algorithms. So things that are not necessarily so evident or so extreme, but still uh, technologies that are used to distort behavior in a way. And so they try to regulate that too. But then on that specific ability to, uh, you know, identify people, depending on where they are, what they are doing, that is uh, a threat to democracy. You know, so I'm thinking of, of social media, how we, it can control what you see. Like, for example, on Facebook, in the past they've admitted to, to posting certain things to control your emotions, which to me is, is, is abominable. Absolutely. It is, there is a... Um, uh, there are studies that actually investigate this ability to um, uh, really uh, control the way we think as users, the, the, what we are going to see next, what we are going to feel next. Um, you know, it's a, I think it's described that really competing for our attention. And in that, every sort of um, uh, strategies has become, um, you know, almost allowed. And we don't even realize that where we are watching something, actually someone is working in such a way that we just crave to watch more of the same, or yeah. more of the similar things. It's just a way to really uh, control society um, um, in a very, uh, again, subliminal way, if you like. You know, what's crazy at the moment is if you want to go and search online, the world's biggest search engine at the moment is Facebook. When it needs to be Google, and that scares me that people are using the social media accounts to search for things. Absolutely, and that can be filtered in a certain way, yeah. that can be based on the content that you want to see more, so they tend to show you things that, you know, you as a user, because they know the kind of user you are, you know the kind of things you react to, you know the kind of things you like, so they can show you more 
of what you want to see, what you want to hear. Um, and also, uh, we know uh, that actually very controversial content is typically content that pushes people to watch more or people to react to it more. Yeah. And so there is also this idea that actually controversial content, um, you know, it's a way for these platforms to optimize their revenues, to optimize the attention, to win uh, our attention. And so from a, uh, you know, kind of social perspective, it's all extremely worrying. Also because it doesn't happen in a way that we can clearly understand. Yeah, and at times you might get a scenario where an advertiser will not know whether ads are going to appear. So the ads could appear in content that they don't agree with themselves. Yeah, um, it is. It is a, just a way to also convince people of certain things. And, you know, we are not paying enough attention. And this is a discussion um, that we are... Um, becoming familiar with, we are not paying attention about the sources of the information that we actually consume. And so we are in a society where, you know, it doesn't matter who said that, if you believe it, as long as you believe it, it's true. So we have this issue between authenticity and believability. And this platform have taught us that actually as long as you believe it, as long as that user believes it, then it's okay. And this is wrong. Um, Authenticity is something else and we should pay more attention about the sources of the information that we consume and we should be looking and I think this is something that in my research um, I try to do all the time I cover privacy and there are still uh, some people that might be very skeptical about the importance of privacy or typically uh, there are people that say well people might say they care about privacy but they do nothing uh, to really protect it you know that kind of of um conversations still happen and I try to have those conversations I think that we should be looking to a conversation with people that have a completely different perspective just listening all the time to similar ideas to the one I already have cannot help me improve in any way so we just should change the approach that we have uh, to information to the content we consume and and to the stuff that we see well to me it's worse because you're in a pandemic you're, you're getting on people who are saying certain things they're saying like don't wear masks don't get vaccinated COVID is a hoax, and it's not good. Yeah, um, you know, while I believe that it's important um, to still um, provide people with the opportunity to express themselves, I think that we should be very careful about, um, you know, um, about creating um, fake credibility um, in things that don't have any. And I always say, if 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 it's on Facebook, it's not always true. I want to go to the original source, and if that source is credible, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we should take, you know, also in this society that is so now, um, you know, fast, everything moves um, faster, even with the pandemic, if I think about business environments, you know, even in Europe, the um, increase of demand for public cloud infrastructure and for applications and can help. Um, consumer interact in a digital world more than they did before, employees do their job in a digital world. Everybody has been moving so fast because this has been a sudden change, a sudden and profound change. Yeah. And so in, in the way we are just used now to act as consumers, to act as employees, it's sometimes difficult to have that um, you know determination to say, okay, I will take my time and review 
these sources. I may take my time and, and making sure that what I'm reading, what I'm consuming, what I'm sharing actually um, has credibility and, uh, and I am comfortable um, doing that. So because it's um, The worst thing for me is, is when you're sharing information and your friends believe it's true because they trust you. Yeah. So, and, and there is some research that we um, are doing now that actually suggests that people trust what comes from friends, friends and family. Yeah. Particularly, so there is a lot of you know if if coming from someone close to me is if an information this can be true for product review um, as well as other kind of information if it's coming to me from a member of my family from one of my friends I tend to believe and I tend I tend to trust that yeah. much more than other information so there is a lot of responsibility that we must take. Uh, when we decide to share um, information, because some people will take it very seriously. Yeah, for me, when I do product reviews, if I don't know a product that well, or I know I can't give an honest review, I won't review it because it's not, it's not fair on the product and on people reading the review because they're going to look at it and think it's a bad product. So I always say to one, one of my colleagues in Irish Tech News, I can't review this. Will you review it instead? Because I know you, you, you can give a better review than I could because you've used the product in the past more than I have. It's, yes, it's, it's about being uh, fair and making sure that the person who reads what I'm, I'm reviewing can look at it and suddenly walk, walk away knowing that they're reading the truth and not reading something that basically isn't true. Yes, another thing that I believe it's important for us to keep in mind is that there is a difference between an opinion, yeah. uh, between um, giving um, educated, informed, professional advice, um, and and actually providing uh, facts, information yeah. about facts. So we should we should keep that in mind. Yeah. An opinion is not uh, professional advice on a matter, and is not uh, um, you know uh, providing facts yeah. necessarily um, on a matter. So that's a, a, a difference that I think it's important to to keep in mind. It's like for example, if you go to uh, four four lawyers, each would give different opinions. And, all, and they're all right in their own way, but which one do you believe? That's why when you say about opinions, opinion is just what it is. Somebody else's view will be different than mine. That's fair enough, and it's an opinion. And, that's, and, it's not, and, I, and when you say an opinion, I'm not saying it's fact. I'm saying this is what I believe. Exactly. Yeah. Now, hopefully, you will have considered truth and yeah. real facts in formulating those opinions. But the fact that you're saying this is my opinion is already kind of uh, categorizing that, that sort of communication. People can take it as it is. It's an opinion. Yeah, like this morning I wrote an article I published about the European Super League and I, I brought about how fan power and social media yes. had helped to get where it was. And, and when it first came, uh, came out, I saw it last Sunday, it wasn't a match, and after the match over, they, they announced it, breaking news about this. And then an English commentator, an ex-pop player, Gary Neville, went on a nine-minute rant on TV saying why it was wrong. And he was a person you either love or hate. And those who hated him suddenly loved him. And from that it grew. And I said, well, it's because social media and people power grew from that. And, it, and it, his opinion is an opinion, but it was a right opinion. And everyone felt behind it. I said, well, I have to, I've got to write about it because I felt strongly shouldn't go ahead. And it's my opinion, but it, it, it was a right opinion. And certain people are going to think, yeah, you're right. Yes, that, the fact that like, <clears> the example that you're bringing up, yeah. Um, has been definitely something I'm looking at. Our research suggests that 
what we call the the, the rise of um, values based consumers. Yeah. So those are consumers that are more likely to buy products from a company that share similar values to them. Yeah. Um, some consumers are uh, proactively looking for ethical commitment to a company before they actually become a customer of that company. So there is a lot in terms of um, you know having these. Um, uh, agreement on, on values and I almost felt that all what happened in the UK around the Super League really is another example of how still there is a sense of, of value in, in the football fans and the fact that that decision was so different that the value of that genuine competition the football is yeah. brought people to say no we don't want this we don't recognize ourselves in this decision we don't think that the, actually the football um, uh, uh, teams are now sharing those same values and so to me it was a reaction to someone who is in a way breaking a promise yeah. is a reaction to someone that all of a sudden doesn't share the same values anymore and, and so it's been very interesting from that perspective to watch because I've seen some English fans saying they're going to support the rival team now, but this goes through. And that to me says, when someone says that, you know basically they've been serious. And when I was watching this unfold, last night I thought, this is this is something I've got to write about. Because it, last night it officially ended, as we know. I thought, well, I've got to write about it. Because social media, it's like the, we had the Arab Spring 10, 11 years ago in the Middle East. And social media was used, used to share that. And then also I thought... In the end, I wrote about, a bit about how in Myanmar they've closed down the internet because they don't want pe- people power and people's opinions to, to get out there. Yes, this is, I mean, of course, that is extremely worrying, but I think it's a transformation that we started to see um, across the board and in very different scenarios. So the one we are, are talking about now is really the one around the football fans. Yeah. But in the consumer world, we have seen a number, a number of occasions, consumers, for example, I remember some times ago, Netflix changing their pricing strategy, and there were a number of consumers and said, well, this is not fair to us. Yeah. And, they, and there is, uh, you know, for instance, we have some research and talk about the bargain in the age of the customer where you don't refer to a union anymore in the old sense of it. But you have people coming together because they believe that something is wrong. And we see that in consumer, and by the way, in that specific uh, case of Netflix, they managed to get that pricing changed again because yeah. they felt it was very unfair to consumer. It happens, and we have an example in the employee space, where, for example, we have a certain company that says, well, I can provide support for artificial intelligence in battle zones, when it's war, in war zones, we know the employees said, well, no, we don't want our technology that we are developing or the brand that we are working for being associated with that kind of activity. And so they forced the company not only to then change the agreement, and they were working with the U.S. government, that's yeah. the case of Google a few years ago, but they forced a company to actually sign a document where they said, we will not be involved um, in this kind of, of use cases. So um, I think that what we are saying is not just about um, stopping social media or the internet from working. There is just a different mindset than people have as football fans, as citizens, as consumers, and employees. They know that their voice has a lot of power yes. um, and they are using it for what they believe is right. Because 20 years ago, this couldn't happen because social media wasn't there. And it would have got. And if 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 it did go through, and it it didn't happen in the end, it would take a lot longer to go through. But the fact it took three four days to stop this, that to me says social media has a place in so in society, and it's shown that it can be used for good and not evil. 
Yes, social media can be used for good, but I think also what's a change is actually the balance of power in a way. Yeah. 20 years ago, it was all about, you know, um, institutions like um, governments or it was much more about established corporations. They would have the power. Employees, consumers were more uh, in a reactive mode, if you like, but they didn't even have this expressive power. Now, technology, not just social media, but I think technology in general has helped uh, just design a new and determine a new balance of power where actually citizens, consumers, employees have the ability to um, see things. I, uh, in a recent speech, I did say that technology has made organization institutions and, and corporations as diamond in the sense that we can look through. Yeah. We have the power today to say, well, we don't need an organization to say we stand for a certain value and then do nothing about it. Because technology and social media, think about uh, software that is there to actually uh, monitor and, and, and map supply chains. Yeah. So as an organization, you cannot tell me that you are against uh, children, uh, child labor, and then you are working with a series of third parties that are actually using them. We as consumers can see that today. Think about GDPR yeah. in the sense of giving me the power to come back to you and say, hey, which data have you collected about me? How you are using my data? Because if you said that you were using data for a certain purpose, now I have the power to actually check that that is true. And I think technology has created this transparency today, which should bring accountability. Now, platforms, social media... Uh, can be used in that sense and it's very good it's a very uh, you know again helping shape up a new balance of power um, at the same time we know that also there are uses of that um, social media and there are decisions that social media platforms are taking the world don't go exactly uh, into that direction I would say they go um, in the opposite direction and what we were discussing before about if extremist content is more likely to optimize my revenues, yeah. I may go for that. And that is not responsible in any way. That is not fair in any way. And those uh, companies should be accountable for it. Because I'm thinking 20 years ago when we had something like 9-11, if social media existed then, we could see live what was happening. And at times we're relying on the news and we don't know if the news is biased or fake, where if someone's on the ground, citizen journalists can control what's happening. And also, in other things like politics and other things, we're getting to see the real story and not just what we're told. That is absolutely true. And, and again, but you see then where is the um, uh, the point there is that technology is for us a tool. Yeah. And it's true, it provides more uh, transparency, gives us the ability to actually check and verify whether our organization, institutions, companies are doing what they say they are doing. This is all good, but we have to take the time and we need to apply our critical judgment still in what we see yeah. and say, did I check my source? Can I trust this information? Is this actually true? Am I listening to something that mm, I might have doubt about? We have to have the ability to exercise our critical judgment um, in the way we are using technology. And sometimes we are almost uh, investing technology with that role of having that critical judgment for us. Yeah. And this is wrong. This is something technology cannot do for us is a tool and as such it should be um it should be used also in many ways it makes us more vulnerable we were mentioning before the fashion recognition uh entire policing systems and now are trying to prevent crime from happening yeah. but actually as a result they are targeting 
minorities, they are targeting, uh, uh, you know, uh, groups that not necessarily have any ability or, or that are more inclined to commit anything simply because they are using models that are built on historical uh, data and, and they tend to replicate those dynamics that have happened in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's making also all of us vulnerable and this is why we need some correction in the way we are using technology. And I think um, to a certain extent, we really, um, we really need that as a society. Yeah, because at times, when you use some historical data, data could be 30, years, 20, 30, 40 years old, and it's saying, you know, this group or this, these people have done in the past, they'll do it again. They don't realize that as they grow up and society changes, they will change as well, and they will adapt to society. Yes, well, I hear the argument, you know, the, uh, our past behavior is one of the best predictors of our future behavior. Yeah. That, that is there to stay. However... If I tend to build a data set that would just replicate bias without considering variables and how those variables have changed, without considering how things have evolved over time. So we are just building a model that will take a peak of past behavior and try to say this is what we're replicating in the future. But it doesn't work like that because actually we are not considering the complexity around the past behavior and, and the future behavior. And also one of the things that I keep saying is that many people believe that if a decision based on data that decision must be an objective decision because yeah. it's based on data. It's a technology that is not a human. It's a technology taking that decision. That is so wrong in the way we are building a model, in the way we are selecting that data, in the way we are training an algorithm. We as humans are making very subjective decisions. And so this idea that if data-driven or is a technology taking a decision, that decision must be right. That is so, so, so misled. Yeah. That's not the case. There is a lot of judgment in building those, or lack of judgment, in actually building the data, the models, and the systems that are going to take those decisions. This is what we need to monitor. Yeah, because the AI hasn't actually seen, in that in real life, it doesn't know what's going to happen. Whereas, if you or I interact with something in real life, we know things that can change, and we're more willing to uh, to act on that, whereas with AI, you, you're given data, and that's and at times the data is presented to you in a certain way that makes you think one way only. Yeah, I mean the technology is no mistake, and it, it does in most cases what it's supposed to do. It's just what we are feeding into that technology yeah. that is problematic. If we are feeding bias to the technology, there is more bias coming out of it. If we are feeding discrimination, there is more discrimination coming out of it. I think. Uh, there is a lot of discussion. This is why transparency, you know, is so important into and explicability. I do like that idea of, um, you know, being able to justify a certain outcome, to justify a certain decision, to show that actually there is a risk understanding behind. There are um, an um, uh, understanding of how. Uh, you know, certain things came about and, and how the technology should be um, also looking into that. So uh, on one side, I believe that this push into transparency and being able to explain how decisions are taken, um, in other words, what some of those artificial intelligence guidelines are now calling the um, um, human agency and yeah. the ability as human to actually govern that technology. And the decision is very important. I know that data scientists often say, well, most of the time we don't really know the outcome. Um, we are exploring yeah. and, and we don't really know what we are looking for. Um, again, um, 
there are some use cases and there are some ways using the technology. In some cases, you could allow that exploration. But for those very high-risk usages, um, I think you need to be cautious and you need to know what you are doing. Because yeah, it's harder when AI makes a decision, it's harder to try and explain why you made that choice. Because the moment you, you explain it, if, that, if it made a choice because it was fed bias, then how do you try and explain that? Yeah, it is a challenge. I, I talked to someone recently that said that, uh, you know, um, banks have to show uh, because of other requirements that they have. They might have they might have regulators coming in and saying, do you understand, okay, I want to audit the algorithm that you're using, I want to audit the model you're doing. And sometimes it's pages and pages and pages of, um, you know, mathematical formulas. And it's, you know, how you make that something that um, a regulator can understand, something that a consumer can understand. You know, it's a challenge. It's not simply the fact that you don't know what you're doing sometimes is really the challenge of explaining things. Um, someone else told me, you know, fairness is one of those principles that many of those artificial intelligence or trustworthy artificial intelligence guidelines have. But how do you make sure that you are translating fairness into a, um, again, into a mathematical formula? And they told me we have about 18 different definitions of fairness, 18 different formulas that would in, in some ways help us introduce the fairness into the models. But it also tells me that, yes, there is a challenge in transferring all these concepts into our natural language, in, into a model. But very often, and that particular example shows that actually the challenge was, as an organization coming together, deciding this is fairness to us. Yeah. It was the fact that so many different ways of understanding fairness that then led to proliferation of different ways of expressing it into a model. So I think that very often organizations have to do their um, homework in terms of understanding the risks, defining the risks, and also understanding what are the principles that they want to um, follow and, and what do they actually mean. Yeah. Well, for example, if I look at a company and they look at the higher staff and they get a lot of people applying for a job, they use AI to, to go through their CV and look for certain keywords. And if they see you live in a certain area and that area is, is an area that basically has a great reputation, they might say, that person's not getting an interview. Even though they haven't met them, they don't, they're assuming that when that person could be the right person for the job. Absolutely. There is um, an example some time ago. They've actually do a two um, CVs pretty much the same, just the name was different. Yeah. And actually, one was preferred over the other in a significant way. Again, it is because we probably in that organization, and there was the other example of um, female and male employees, and because teams typically were mainly do mainly dominated, yeah. so there was more men in those teams, then uh, the recruiting process led by artificial intelligence would prefer over men. Um, rather than women, yes. simply because the historical data that were used led to that decision. I mean, there are a number of, again, uh, biases, and, and uh, the hiring and recruiting, is, I think, is an industry where artificial intelligence uh, is really changing things. But again, uh, going back to this proposal for um, this new regulation, artificial intelligence, hiring and recruiting is one of those areas where I think regulator will be um, looking into because of, the uh, again, the evolution of the technology there. And also, I think it, it could be used in a way that when it's looking through, sex shouldn't come into it. If you're male or female, that shouldn't be anything they should consider. They should just look at the person on merit and look at maybe what schools have got their education. 
rather than where they where they where they're from or where they live or their background because sometimes to me that's not important yes i agree um however in uh, you know in this uh, in the conversation about diversity and inclusion which has become again um luckily a discussion that most often we are hearing uh, more often than in the past, for sure. Um, we know, and we have data that suggests that diverse teams perform yeah. better. And so just that should be enough, actually, to lead um, uh, managers, employers, to, to make those decisions about who do we hire, also looking at those elements, diversity, inclusion, culture. Similarly, and you know, it goes back to that discussion about artificial intelligence. You need to have uh, people from very different backgrounds kind of, of, of feeling their feedback into the system so that you avoid replicating some of the same biases. Is that inclusion that actually helps creating better results, even for artificial intelligence, but definitely uh, for society? So what I would say is that sometimes um, it's important that you really are proactive as a manager, as an employer, to make sure that you are building diversity. And again, sex is, is one uh, um, factor there, but is the background, culture, where we are coming from, you want that diversity is um, enriching um, your organization, your products, your uh, you know society generally. Because when you got a, 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 diverse, a diverse workforce, that, that is a good thing because it more or less shows you that uh, as a consumer that everything this company does, they're inclusive and, and they're, they're looking at all backgrounds are not biased towards a certain culture. Yes. Um, absolutely, we we develop product services um, and we create corporate cultures that just um, you know reflect um, those uh, uh, those important values. I think it's uh, it's key, and not just because one of the things that um, you know we have looked into for that values based uh, research that I mentioned before. Um, there are some you know uh, there is still some understanding or misunderstanding about well this all this discussion about values you know it will just will go away all this equity and inclusion and fairness it just go away we know for a fact we have been uh, really tracking the trend and that's been here already for for some times I think that just thinking all this stuff will just go away just another hype um, yeah. we are missing the message this is something that is um, just here for say another typical misunderstanding is about People that care about values and choose on the basis of values are people that have large income. Our data suggests that actually it's not like that. It's not income related. Now, there are certain products that, for example, if they are sustainable, might be, uh, you know, costing more. That is still a factor. But largely, this value, the, under the understanding that, uh, you know, values are important for me as a consumer, it goes yep. beyond and my income. It goes beyond age, too. Yep. It's not just for something for young consumers. It's really spreading across across age groups yeah and uh, I, I think we've, we've, we've covered it quite a bit today and uh, I think people are going to be now more informed about AI ethics and also about what the EU is doing which is very important because obviously we need certain guidelines in place and without guidelines by people who, who are making laws things things aren't going to change and the EU are, are seeing that and are trying to make things a bit better make us understand more what the AI is doing yeah, so I, I believe that we need guidance, uh, guidelines. I um, believe that if the regulation is there to help us think through the risks, 
and um, help us take accountability for this risk and also find a way to mitigate those risks. Well, first of all, this should be incentivizing innovation because yeah. once you take care of the risk, you actually can go and do more with it. So um, I, I think um, we should see uh, techno- um, regulation also as a way to help, um, you know, taking care of, of um, uh, risks that we need to take care of, creating accountability. All of this is very good. I also think that every regulation, because it's how regulation works, every regulation can come with unintended consequences and, and can come with, you know, a series of, um, again, um, unintended consequences. We need to make sure that we try and foresee them as much as possible, yeah. that we include correction for it. Um, and, you know, as it was for the GDPR, it will be for that new piece. We didn't mention, but there is also a new proposed regulation on um, data governance, the Data Governance Act, uh, try and regulate data sharing um, across country, across actors. And then there is this proposed regulation on artificial intelligence. There is a lot from the European uh, Commissioner on data. Um, it's a very, very sensitive topic, of course. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we have to prepare. There will be unintended consequences. These pieces of regulation are never perfect. But we have to uh, bring it to balance and, and trying to understand what we are trying to protect. There is a better way of doing it and trying to optimize and improve as we, as we move along. But I think these are very important decisions cannot be led or cannot be left to the technology yeah. alone or to corporations alone. So I think basically we covered a lot today and thanks so much for that, Enza, and have a great day and good luck in the future. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a nice day. You too, thanks. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.